Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Steve Hayes, uh, joined today by David Axelrod, the chief political strategist for Barack Obama um, in 2008 and counselor during his presidency. Uh, Axelrod today is host of the Axe Files podcast, uh, very good, very popular podcast, and also co-host of Hacks on Tap, which he does with Republican political consultant Mike Murphy uh, and Democrat Robert Gibbs. Axelrod also runs the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, and we have a great discussion about uh, the, the primaries this first week of August, the two political parties, the challenges internally for Republicans and for Democrats, and the possibility of a major disruption in our politics. Could we see a third party in 2024? David, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's good to be with you, Steve. After a long night for both of us. Yeah, a, a long night indeed. Um, well, I thought you would be a, a, the perfect person to have on to talk about some of that, and then we'll get into a, a wider discussion about uh, uh, this political moment right now. Um, but looking across the results last night, you have uh, victories for some uh, strong uh, candidates strongly backed by Donald Trump, um, including what looks to be a, a victory for Kari Lake uh, in the Republican gubernatorial primary in Arizona, a very strong uh, Trumper, a, a, a conspiracy theorist, someone who is an election denier. Um, you have Tudor Dixon in Michigan, um, nearly doubled up her opponent. You have Eric Schmidt, who was one of the two Eric's that Donald right. Trump yes. endorsed in, yeah. in, yeah. uh, in Missouri. He bought two lottery tickets in that one. <laughs> yeah. the, 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 only, the only person who could get away with that, I think. Uh, something of a troll, but we know that he's going to use it. Um, and then, He's got a lot of experience getting away with things, too. He, he certainly does. Um, and then um, uh, in Michigan's third district john john gibbs uh, uh trump supported candidate worked in the trump administration took on peter meyer uh a young republican uh from the grand rapids area who uh voted voted for impeachment one so, of ten yes one of ten let's let's start with um the the meyer race uh the house race because it featured an additional wrinkle um not only did uh, John Gibbs get support from Donald Trump and from sort of MAGA uh, nationally and from local Republican clubs, he also received some pretty significant support from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, funded him to the tune of nearly a half a million dollars to, to, to lift him to victory uh, in this. He won by four points in this primary. Less than four, I think. Is that Less right? than okay. four. Yeah, I think it narrowed. I, I, I'm not sure that he won by three. Listen, uh, I think uh, that Donald Trump deserves a great deal of credit uh, for Meyer's defeat. It was obviously a priority for him, vengeance being what Trump eats for breakfast. Uh, but it's also uh, a victory for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And I think an ignominious 
if victory can be ignominious, this was an ignominious victory. And, you know, I've been very outspoken about this. Uh, I mean, I have concerns about the tactic of elevating election, right, you know, extremist election deniers in races across the country. But this one was particularly irksome to me. I mean, I generally worry about the fact that if you elevate these people, you know, one of these scuds could actually land in November. Right. right. Uh, you know, we, we, if the tide is, is, to mix metaphors, if the tide is right, uh, someone could, one of these people could actually uh, get through more than one. But the bigger issue to me here was Peter Meyer, a first term congressman uh, from Western Michigan, uh, veteran, uh, saw saw his oath as more important than his career, and he voted for impeachment, uh, and he stood up for the principle of democracy. And um, and the Democratic Party should not, as the party that, uh, that uh, presents itself as the party of democracy, should not be lifting up election deniers and making common cause with Trump in his vengeance tour to, uh, to knock off people who voted uh, for impeachment. I have no problem. I have no problem if Democrats uh, wanted to invest heavily in the Democratic candidate in a general election uh, against Meyer. Of course. Because Meyer has differences with Democrats on a series of issues. That's why he's a Republican. That's the way democracy is supposed to be. Uh, but what was done here was really disappointing. And I think um, to the discredit of the, of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Yeah, I, I would say I got to know Peter Meyer uh, fairly well. He's been on this podcast a couple of times. Um, I've been co- I've been covering politics for a long time. Uh, I'm not easily impressed. I don't think I've, I'm. I try as hard as I can not to be cynical um, about the process and about particular politicians. Um, but after a while, you can become cynical about about politicians. I'd say Peter Meyer was was somebody who who kind of defied cynicism. He was so smart and and so thoughtful. And I shouldn't talk about him in the past tense. He is so smart. Yes. He's so thoughtful. Yes. Um, he's still alive. He, he's still alive. Uh, and I suspect he may, he may return to politics, but he took this vote within just a few days of his being sworn in to Congress. And, uh, I knew full well what he was doing with respect to the Republican party. I mean, I think he understood that he would be defying a president, uh, that he would be angering constituents, uh, and what have you, uh, I think it never occurred to him that he would find himself um, sort of a target of the Democratic Party for having done what I think, you know, many of us believe is exactly the kind of thing you want, you know, not just Peter Meyer to do in this particular situation, but we want our politicians to do in any situations, which is Absolutely. Do, do what's right, do what you, yeah. you think is, is consistent with your principles. I saw his comments, Steve, about um, his decision and about the insidious thing that happens. He was talking about his colleagues who knew better uh, and yet didn't vote for impeachment and he, and, and the sort of self-seduction that they did to explain that, you know, they, there are all these other important things they wouldn't be there to do. And uh, if, if they, uh, voted for impeachment because they would probably lose. And he's, and he talked about how uh, corrosive that, that way of thinking is, uh, and, uh, you know, that kind of transactional, uh, reasoning on an issue of sort of paramount 
importance to democracy. No, he's, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't know what to say about it other than uh, that it was deeply, deeply disappointing to me and cynical. It was a cynical thing to do. And, you know, I mean, I've said this publicly. I've said it on Twitter. And as you can imagine, the Twitterverse wasn't that receptive to the argument. And But I don't care. I mean, I just, it was wrong. Uh, and they damn well better defeat Gibbs now or... Uh, you know, this is he's one of those scuds that could get through because that district is now a toss up district. Uh, so um, even pro Biden. Right. I mean, it's yeah. Biden I mean, I guess won. I guess I guess uh, Dave Wasserman, whose uh, work at Cook, I watch uh, religiously uh, moved the district to leans Democrat yesterday after Gibbs won. But still, uh, and that's, of course, what Democrats wanted. So they probably, uh, the DCCC probably viewed that as justification. But it doesn't mean that that's going to happen. One reason it might, though, uh, by the way, one one reason why they may uh, feel more secure today than yesterday about winning that seat isn't just that John Gibbs won, but because of what happened in Kansas. Uh, Because in Michigan in the fall, there is a ballot issue on the ballot that would enshrine abortion rights in the constitution of the state of Michigan. And I think abortion rights is going to be central to uh, a central issue to the governor's race there. Uh, uh, Tudor Dixon, who was nominated by Republicans yesterday, is ardently opposed to abortion rights, uh, it, no exceptions. Uh, and this is clearly going to be a major issue in the campaign, and it will affect turnout. Uh, in that state, as it appears to have done in in Kansas, in a pretty significant way. I mean, that was a, a pretty huge turnout. I mean, the ballot. Just to, to give people background, there was uh, a referendum in Kansas asking voters, "Do you want to?" It was the wording of it was a little bit tricky. It was more or less, "Do you want to protect abortion rights in the Kansas state constitution or not?" And uh, giving legislators an opportunity then to to subsequently pass legislation and the uh, pro-abortion rights side won one pretty decisively and saw yeah. the way the way it was written turnout. the way it was written and I don't have the language in front of me a, a yes vote would have given the legislature the right to uh, the right to uh, uh, restrict abortion uh, as they saw fit a no vote uh preserved uh, the in I, I believe it's in the Constitution, but preserved uh, abortion rights uh, in Kansas. And, uh, you know, one of the things about uh, ballot issues, Steve, is when they're confusing, uh, people tend to default to the no vote. But clearly there's more afoot here because they had almost presidential level turnout in Kansas yesterday. And by the way, uh, I know Kurt Kurt Kobach uh, snuck through uh, as the nominee for attorney general, just barely. But uh, uh, Scott Schwab, the secretary of state there, who was not an election denier and who was opposed by a Trump supporting election denier, won fairly comfortably. And I think he won uh, because of the nature of the turnout yesterday. All of this should be disquieting to uh, Republicans who I think thought until the until about six or eight weeks ago, that turnout was going to be their friend in the November election. That's no longer necessarily true. I don't think that uh, 
I don't think that the world has shifted so dramatically that suddenly uh, what appeared to be a really strong Republican year is going to be somehow a Democratic year. But it could be that a Category 5 storm for Democrats may be just a Category 3 storm now. And the difference could be, you know, the United States Senate, control of the United States Senate. And it could be uh, the margin of the House that the Republicans have, which has all kinds of implications. So, you know, we've seen dramatic shifts in the political environment in the last six to eight weeks. And Kansas was one reflection of it. Were you surprised at, at this level of turnout? I really was. I mean, I spoke with people on the on the uh, uh, anti-abortion side yesterday, strategists who told me they they thought they might lose narrowly. Uh, this wasn't a narrow loss. This was fifty nine forty one. I mean, that's a that's a thumping. Uh, so, I mean, I do think in the uh, in the laboratories of uh, the Republican Party. Uh, there's, uh, and you've been in those laboratories and around those laboratories, there's, there's, there, I think peop- the computers are worrying this morning, calculating what this means and, and, uh, you know, what, what, uh, they should do to adjust if they can before November, because, uh, you know, in swing states in Georgia, in Arizona, in, uh, Mi- uh you know, Michigan, in, in Wisconsin, uh, you know, and, uh, in Nevada, um, the issue could end up being a real problem for uh, Republicans in the fall. Republicans, uh, there's there's reasonable amount of data suggesting that Republicans have been more motivated by abortion as an issue when they turn out to vote than Democrats have in, in recent past. Um, probably because Republicans have more single-issue voters who are pro-lifers than Democrats have single-issue voters who are pro-choicers. Um, that's, if, if Kansas can be extrapolated um, beyond that particular red state, that seems to be changing, or at least at least up yeah. for grabs at, at this point. Remember there was a book, uh, was it Tom Frank? Who wrote the book? Uh, what's some the matter years with ago? Kansas? What's, what's the matter with Kansas? I think there are a lot of Republicans who are asking, what's the matter with Kansas uh, today? Yes, I think that uh, the Dobbs decision made uh, uh, a lot of voters, and not just Democratic voters, but uh, suburban uh, moderate Republican voters, uh, women uh, who have, may vote, vote Republican uh, generally, independent vote, have made them uh, single issue voters uh, or potentially single issue voters. And here's the thing. Uh, because turnout is everything here. Midterm elections generally go against the governing party uh, because uh, the party out of power votes their grievances and turnout generally favors the party out of power. That clearly is the direction this was heading. Uh, it still may be true because, you know, the, uh, inflation is still inflation. There's, you know, president's approval rating, still the president's approval rating. The, uh, the public attitudes toward, about the direction of the country haven't shifted. Um, and so, you know, the, the atmospheric still may favor uh, Republicans, but the idea that Democrats are going to stay home. Young people are going to stay home. Uh, that uh, this is going to be a walkover because only Republicans are going to uh, uh, turn out. Uh, I don't think that's uh, the case. I think it more the more uh, I think we're, we're more likely to see a higher Democratic turnout 
And we may see more Republican-leaning independent voters shifting away from Republican candidates who have ardently uh, anti-abortion positions. Yeah, not just anti-abortion positions, but who have anti-dem- an, 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 yeah, yeah anti-democracy right positions exactly have, have embraced because, the extremes here. Because the other thing that happened yesterday was uh, the other big story was Trump's still the big dog on the block. I mean, he 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 swept these apparently swept all these races in uh, Arizona. The, the, it looks like he's going to win the governor's race and hand a defeat to Pence and to Doug Ducey, the governor, who were on the other side of it, got an election denier, Carrie Lake, uh, won the Senate uh, uh, primary with Blake Masters, who I think is going to be a less strong candidate than they need to win uh, there. I'll have a word about that in a second. Uh, But the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, election deniers, they knocked off Rusty Bowers, the heroic Speaker of the Arizona House, whose testimony before the January 6th com- committee was both uh, riveting and important. Uh, you know, so Trump, you know, on a, this was a good day for him on his vengeance tour. Uh, but uh, the question is, does that help the Republican Party in November? I don't think Blake Masters is going to be, as I said, a good candidate. for. He's just too extreme. Uh, I don't think that uh, Herschel Walker necessarily is going to be the strongest candidate in, in, in Georgia. Trump dictated uh, that choice. I don't think Dr. Oz is going to be the strongest candidate for Republicans in Pennsylvania. So I keep saying Democrats may retain control of the United States Senate and if they do, Donald Trump will be the most valuable player. He will be, you know, if Democrats get a an assist in knocking off Peter Meyer, Donald Trump will get a trophy for keeping the the Senate in Democratic hands in the fall. Yeah, let me ask you about that. You know, there's there is this uh, two word aphorism in in politics that uh, has been kicked around for as certainly as long as I've been covering politics. Candidates matter. And it's, it's a shorthand. And, and of course, it's true. But it seems to me that Republicans might get a, a very up close look this year at how true that is, because there have been candidates who would likely have been much more competitive in uh, a general election who don't make it past the primary for exactly the reasons that that you're suggesting. If the Senate was in play if we thought the Senate was likely in play before these primaries this late spring and, and summer, um, certainly it looks to be more, it looks like Democrats have a much better shot of retaining control today than they did four months ago. Yeah. And, you know, um, what's been interesting is that um, by and large, uh, candidates who are supported uh, strongly by the left on the Democratic side have fared less well in Democratic primaries than some of these extreme candidates on the on the Republican side have done on, uh, there. And this is really sort of part of the problem, Steve, that Republicans have to consider. Uh, something happened after the Dobbs decision to um, mass shootings uh, and the January 6th committee uh, hearings coupled with Trump's reemergence as a kind of center stage player in Republican politics. And what happened is that, 
you know, six months ago, you got into focus groups with independent voters and the discussion would be, gee, the Democratic Party's gone too far left. Biden's being tugged left. Uh, we're uncomfortable with that. Uh, now the discussion has been turned on its head and the discussion is Republicans are scaring me. They're scaring me. And uh, that is a shift worth uh, watching. Again, you know, we're sitting here in early August uh, and politics is a fickle thing and things can change. But um, there is much more life in this midterm election campaign than uh, than we thought there was uh, just uh, just a couple of months ago. And yet, if you look at Joe Biden's approval ratings, they are low. Um, he's not in a strong position. By any standard, yes. Not in a strong position. Um, You look at the economy, you look at inflation, the fact that we had a debate for a couple of weeks about whether we're in a recession or not. Um, I think people look back to the Afghanistan Which is crazy, by the way. That we're having a debate or that we're- Well, I mean, mean like who cares? I, I, I mean, the fact of the matter is people, do you think America's sitting around the kitchen table saying- I don't know how I feel about the economy. I need to hear what the panel says about whether we're in a recession or not. I mean, that's not how people think. They go to, you know, and it's not really recessionary fears uh, that are motivating people now, although I think those are moving up. But, you know, they're still coping with inflation. Uh, But it's like how they live their lives, you know. They go to the gas station. They go to the grocery store. Uh, it is interesting that gas prices have dropped, you know, 80 cents or whatever it is. And, you know, I'm sure Biden sits in the White House and says, how come I get blamed when they go up, but I don't get credit <laughs> credit when they go down? But, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, one of the interesting things that's going on right now that I've not seen in my experience is it's it's been almost gospel that the president's approval rating dictates what happens in midterm elections. But what we've seen in the last few weeks is Democratic Democrats moving up in the generic ballot. Not enough, by the way, to forestall losses, but uh, you know, certainly moving up, even as Biden's approval rating has been moving down or has, at, or has been stalled at a very low uh, point. So there's been a detachment uh, of thinking on the part of voters between the midterm elections and the president's approval rating. It's as if he's not even relevant to their uh, thinking. And I think, uh, you know, those events I mentioned, Dobbs, the shootings, the hearings, and Trump's reemergence has created concerns for voters that is creating this anomaly. Yeah. I mean, are we are we likely to be, be entering a, a period where we see more voting for individual candidates, less straight ticket voting, than we have in the past. I mean, you see people, you you, you see these anomalies, um, no, not regularly, but certainly more regularly than I remember seeing them 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, well, I mean, in fact, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the trend has been going in the other direction. We have less split ticket voting than we've had, you know, probably in my lifetime. You know, uh, people tend to vote their... Party party affiliations have become tribal. Uh, you know, you have very few. I think there are six members left in the United States Senate who represent states uh, of the opposite part, where you know the White House controls the opposite party. Uh, 
you know, that's, there's a similar effect in the house. It's unusual for people to, um, to, to break ranks. This, this could happen. I'll tell you something. If I were you, uh, and I was a kind of, uh, a center right Republican, or maybe to put it another way, a pro-democracy Republican, um, you know, there's an opportunity here. The short, there's a short-term cost, but there's a long-term opportunity. Trump is is celebrating today all these victories. If these candidates all lose in November, there's going to be there's going to have to be a reckoning in the Republican Party about whether this is the way we want to go. Uh, you know, so uh, that'll be interesting. If if Democrats retain the Senate because the Trump-inspired candidates lost. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, that's going to be, uh, that should be cause, uh, for reflection on the I mean, part you, of Republicans. You, you would have, so I'm, I'm not a Republican. I haven't been a Republican for years and years, but if you, it, you would have thought January 6th might've caused such a reckoning, right? Y- yes. You know. But I'm, but, but, you know, but what you, but you're thinking about this in ways that politicians don't generally think. I mean, you know, I've said it a million times. I'll say it again here. There's a reason Profiles and Courage was such a slim volume. <laughs> and the fact is it's unusual for republic, for not Republicans, it's unusual for politicians to think about, uh, about things larger than their own success and survival and power. I mean, that's why the DCCC uh, did what it did. That's why so many Republicans voted uh, against impeachment when they knew uh, what the president did was wrong and and impeachable uh, for sure, um, you know. So um, you know, I I I, uh, I think that uh, it is their it's self interest that drives these decisions. So if the party sees itself losing ground because of this alliance, it also is going to it should cause them to think about. I mean, it's interesting to me, Steve, and I, I know. Midterms are different than presidential elections. Interesting to me that so many Republicans are begging Trump not to announce before the uh, before the uh, the the general election because they feel he would be a liability. Well, if he, you know, I, I guess I would argue if he's a liability now, he's going to be a liability in two thousand twenty four as well. Uh, and so, you know, but the problem is they can't live with him and they can't live without him. Uh, he is so powerful in the Republican primaries that uh, they, uh, you know, they're afraid to take him on. It will be interesting to see once we're past primary season, how many Republicans try and dance away from the election denial position, how many start softening their position. We saw this with Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. He kind of flirted with this when he was um, when he was trying to be nominated, uh, he, he was nominated and then he danced away from it. Um, he may be dancing toward it again a little bit because he, um, he, I think pretty clearly wants to run for president now. But the point is, um, I think all but the ardent Trumpers are going to try and dance away from the election denial position, maybe from Trump, uh, as soon as they're clear of their primaries. Yeah, the, uh, there's a, a Republican member of Congress I talk to somewhat regularly who who has been making an argument for a year that the strongest case Republicans should be making, Trump skeptical Republicans should be making to 
other Republicans is the biggest, what he calls the biggest loser argument. You know, tr Trump is a loser. Look at what happened in 2020. Look at what happened for that. Look at Georgia. Um, and that that's yeah, he the could most effective. Trump may deliver the Senate to Democrats two, two, two cycles twice. in a row. Twice. Right. Um, and, and I think it's, I will, I will admit that I was, again, having done this for a long time, I don't think I'm naive about much uh, at this point, but I was naive about just how powerful the, the need to stay in office is for a lot of these members, because you've had, you've had, you know, Republicans who, you know, not only have embraced something that I think they wouldn't embrace in any other context, but in some cases have flipped, you know, half of the things that they claimed to have once believed just so that they could be on the right side of Trump, just so that they can can stay in office. And I just, you know, at, at what price? Lindsey Graham would be the most obvious example of this, but it, it happens in a more subtle way all the way down. Yeah. Power is a is a uh, intense, intense narcotic and uh, very addictive. And yeah, a lot of these, you know, Lindsey Graham can't imagine life if he were not a United States senator. I mean, it's it's how he defines himself. And and so survival becomes uh, absolutely paramount. And, you know, he's not alone in that. Again, I think it's it's endemic to the breed. And the people you admire are those who uh, the Peter Myers and others who who are willing to test that Liz Cheney. Uh, obviously, uh, 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 and even more. By the way, on Liz Cheney, you know, when the Meyer thing happened and the DCCC invested there, I asked my friends, uh, if Liz Cheney were in a swing district, would you approve of the DCCC trying to beat her in a primary by lifting an, an election denier in, in the primary? Because by the logic of the DCCC, that's what they would have done. And would everybody have been okay with that? Because Meyer was lesser profile, they were they were okay with it. How do you make the judgment? Where does where's the line? When is it okay and when is it not? I mean, uh, so uh, yeah, not to it, it it sticks in my craw. So I I come back to it. The um, when when you look at the the democratic side uh, of the ledger and you think forward through these 2022 midterms to the 2024 cycle obviously there's been lots of discussion about joe biden um in a weakened political position and uh i think a palpable lack of enthusiasm from democrats for for him for his his presidency and you can correct me if you think i'm wrong about that but we had in a debate last night in well, New York, the polling's been pretty clear polling has been pretty clear um carolyn maloney in a uh, uh yeah democratic representative uh last night in the debate said she didn't think biden will run again we've there was a representative democratic representative in in minnesota who said he didn't think biden should run again you're starting to hear this and when people are willing to say this in public and out loud, I think what they're doing is elevating a conversation that's been taking place behind the scenes in democratic circles for quite some time. Um, wh what's your sense about where Joe Biden is? Well, the irony, I mean, the, the thing that's so odd about it is it comes probably at one of the greatest periods of success in the Biden presidency. He's passed, you know, I mean, the objective truth is Joe Biden has had a he a really successful uh, legislative uh, 
record in his first two years in a way that, you know, I think President Obama would be envious uh, and other presidents, uh, you know, when you consider the infrastructure bill, which Obama wanted, Trump wanted, neither of them got the gun bill, which Obama wanted. Uh, and, uh, you know, first gun bill in decades, uh, the, uh, the, the manufacturing bill that was passed and you and I, we could have a philosophical discussion about it, but, uh, but it was a bipartisan achievement. Uh, they just passed this burn pit bill. Now, uh, they're on the cusp of passing this, you know, we'll see what, uh, Senator Cinema does. I'm, I always am tickled, by the way, that her name is Cinema because she's so theatrical about her decision making. But uh, but it really is quite a record. Uh, he you know he 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 did play a leadership role in uniting the Atlantic Alliance around Ukraine. Uh, you know, he just took out uh, Zawahiri. Uh, you know, there are thing. There's plenty there. Uh, and I think if Joe Biden were 60, nobody would having they wouldn't be having this discussion. I mean, Democrats as a breed tend to uh, be, as my colleague David Pluff used to say, bedwetters used to be uh, their hand ringers uh, and uh, less less fall in line than Republicans tend to be. Uh, but uh, but I think the fear is not I mean. Presidents have recovered from bad midterms and bad political situations two years. And Obama had a 38 percent Gallup rating 15 months before he won an electoral landslide in 2012. That's not the issue. The issue is he wasn't 81 when when he was running. And it's beyond the fact that Biden's of Biden's age. I, I think his problem is not performance on the job. It's performative. It's how he does in front of a camera. And he just appears uh, old and he has issues uh, communicating. And we saw it even in the uh, the address he made to the nation about the killing of, uh, uh, of uh, Zawahiri. So uh, that's what's making people nervous. And honestly, I, I really, I have the highest regard for Joe Biden. I was involved in the process by which he became uh, uh, the vice presidential nominee. I served with him for two years in the White House. I think he was a tremendous asset to President Obama. I told you what I think about, you know, he's got a really great body of work he can point to. Uh, the question is, should anybody that age run for president of the United States. And having sat in the office next to a president for two years and having some sense of the pressures of that job, uh, you know, I think it's a question that has to be, he really, Joe Biden needs to confront it. Uh, not the party. He has to think about that and whether that's the right thing to do. Yeah. It's hard to have a, a respectful debate about this because I think, you know, the, the minute you, you bring up, some of these questions about cognitive ability or about his age, uh, you know, there's an, an inclination to, to look at this through the prism of Sean Hannity, who's been, you know, exaggerating and making fun of, of Joe Biden for a long time. But there are real questions. I mean, I was driving home with uh, with my teenage son in the car from hockey practice a little while back, and we were listening to a uh, I think it was the really long, the two and a half hour Joe Biden. I'm impressed that you still conference. play hockey. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, he was the one playing <laughs> hockey. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, I can't really skate anymore. <laughs> um, 
and and we were listening to it and you know it was 10 15 minutes in my my son turned to me and said dad he really doesn't know what he's talking about does he because he would just get to these verbal cul-de-sacs and just not not and you know what I, I i i i don't but i don't think you know i don't think the the issue is cognitive i just think it's a communications issue and it's an appearance issue uh i mean he wouldn't be he wouldn't be doing as well in other realms if that were the issue. Uh, I, I think that he gets a, a bum rap in terms of the cog- cognition issue. It's just a communications issue. And look, but at he the seems end to of the- be struggling to find, you know, basic words. I mean, we've we've seen this. We've seen this in our grandparents or in our parents. We with old people that well, we and love. he, but he, and he, in fairness, he he, you know, he had a speech impediment as a kid. Uh, so, um, uh, but, uh, you know, whatever, whatever is the cause of it, um, his problems at the end of the day to me are not political, they're actuarial. And he needs to just, that's an, that's a discussion that, that he needs to have with his, you know, his advisors and his family. And, you know, I'm quite sure if he thinks that he can go, he, he will. And I think if he does, he will be the nominee of the Democratic Party. Uh, and it's fanciful to think otherwise. Uh, the question he needs to ask himself is, is that the right thing to do? Is it right for him? Is it right for the country? Is it right for the Democratic Party? And uh, I presume he will, um, you know, at the appropriate time, he will he will do that. But I think it actually is an easier decision given the string of victories that he's putting together here because it's a heck of a lot easier to make a soft landing when uh, when you can say, I passed uh, a bunch of things and I did a bunch of things that will have generational importance and impact. And I think he's reaching that point. I think he's got a better, certainly got a better case today than he did three, four months ago. Um, we'll see what we'll see where the economy goes. I want to ask uh, a big picture question about just this political moment in general. Um, we've talked on this podcast before about the, this extraordinary political volatility uh, today. You look back to the 2006 midterms and every election since other than uh, President Obama's 2012 reelect has been a change election. 2006 yes. was a change election. Yeah. Eight, yes. 10, 14, 16, 18, 20. It's, it's all change all the time. We haven't seen that. I, I can't remember a time when we've seen that level of, of volatility um, to what do you attribute that volatility and then what opportunities might that present to to politicians sort of next generation politicians? Well, um, let me take them in order. Look, I, I think that um, change is coming at people more rapidly than ever before because of the churning of technology because of the nature, which is changing our economies uh, dramatically, uh, and also uh, because of the way communications have changed so that, uh, you know, social media is so uh, prevalent and, uh, you know, micro-targeting based on uh, the collection of uh, big data has allowed, you know, for people to kind of... uh, basically the 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 uh the strategy for uh social media platforms is to keep people on 
online uh, so that they can look at advertising. And uh, what the, the great insight of the social media companies that outrage keeps people online. And so, uh, you know, there's profit in outrage for the social media companies. And it turns out with the polarization that we've had and the, uh, uh, and the uh, both redistricting and more than that, the sorting we've done that with fewer and fewer real, really competitive general election contests, outrage is profitable for politicians too. I mean, uh, it's profitable in terms of winning primaries. It's profitable in terms of raising money. Why, why uh, does a lunatic like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, well, how does she become one of the leading fundraisers in the House of Representatives where she contributes nothing but noise? Uh, you know, so in her defense, I think she would be a lunatic even if it didn't help her generate a lot of money. That's true, but she's found a way to monetize it. Uh, so um, I am, uh, you know, and uh, along with all these changes comes, uh, you know, mass migration and uh, demographic changes in our country, all of which has created a caustic mix. Uh, you know, economic, the, 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 the uh, great polarization in our economy between uh, people who are ascendant and people who are not, uh, who are stuck or worse. Um, all of these things are contributing to a sense of constant uh, outrage and desire uh, for change. And it's unhealthy. Uh, and, you know, one thing I think about, Steve, is, you know, it's easy to focus on the, I've said for years, the thing that uh, really Ag, uh, worries me about Donald Trump is not his positions, most of which I disagree with strongly, but the, his utter disregard for rules and laws and norms and institutions, which are the bedrock of a functional democracy and a, and, and a global order for that matter. But uh, the more deeply I thought about it, the more I realized that's also central to his appeal. Uh, a lot of his followers think those rules and laws and norms and institutions are rigged against them. And so we have to do some deeper thinking about why that is and what, how, can, uh, how can democracy uh, respond more um, uh, constructively and positively to the concerns that people have. Um, and, um, you know, it's a really... It's a profound issue, uh, and what we need are leaders who we need profound leaders who are who will think uh, and, and not just think but listen and uh, respond accordingly. Uh, these times demand it. Do you think, um, given this volatility and given th these disruptions that we've seen, there's talk once again of a of, of a third party, and we we know the the uh, structural challenges that a third party candidate would face. Um, I'm, I'm just a lot less uh, inclined to rule something out today that I would have been maybe 10 years ago, uh, having learned that lesson. Is there a chance of a, the rise of a third? If Joe, if Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee and Donald Trump is the Republican nominee and people don't love that choice? Like the David Brooks, Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg party? I mean, <laughs> home for way home for wayward us. Republicans and we'd, Democrats. We'd make Jonah but, the, the uh, candidate, but, and that would but be funny. the uh, but the uh, uh, look. 
I, you know, and I know that um, uh, there is, uh, I see Andrew Yang and uh, Christy Todd Whitman, kind of a weird pairing uh, there, have uh, started something. Uh, I, I just don't, um, I don't think we're structurally set up for that. Uh, and um, I think that reform has to come from within uh, the parties. Um, we're not a parliamentary system. Uh, I think we're set up this way. I mean, maybe I'm not thinking deeply enough uh, about it, but I think what's going to happen is uh, one party or the other is going to pay a price for um, excess. And I honestly think right now the excess is on the Republican side, and that's going to cause, you know, a rethinking. But um, but I don't know. I, I, I'm... I'm still dubious about that. There could be individual cases. It'll be interesting to watch the Utah Senate race uh, this year, for example, uh, where Evan McMullen is running as an independent and Democrats are sitting it out. But that, you know, but that's a unique kind of set of circumstances. Uh, so anyway, that was a word salad that is unresponsive to your question. But, pretty, but I'm hoping but that I'm hoping skeptical. that. I, I'm skeptical. Yeah, I'm skeptical. skeptical. Um, as I say, I'm I'm just less inclined to rule things out than I than I once was. I don't think the, the no. I mean, of look, I know uh, based on what we've seen, it's hard to rule anything out right, in this right, political exactly. environment. So, last question before I let you go, um, I'm I'm uh, it was announced last week that I'm going yes. to be joining you at the Institute yeah. of Politics this fall We're at the University of Chicago. I'm thrilled too. I'm I'm thrilled too. Uh, very excited to be joining you. Um, very excited to to get to meet and interact with the students there who are we know are among the best in the in the world. Um, what are your expectations for you? What do I need to do? How can I how can I make you happy? And how can I uh, best help the students? Well, look, you have a wealth of insights and experience and and associations, and um, you know some of the questions. Sort of the last questions we've pondered are ones that are worthy of uh, discussion. But the thing that I would advise you more than anything else is uh, almost everyone who's been a fellow comes away saying, I came as a giver and left as a taker. Uh, these, these students are so uh, interesting and so thoughtful and, and they give you hope. Uh, they're not, they're not, uh, naive about the flaws of the system, but they also are skeptical. They're not cynical. And they really, they see themselves as actors in their own future and they want to play a constructive role. And they will, they will give you insights that you don't, that you, you don't have. Uh, so, um, they will profit from you being there but you also will profit from being there and you will leave more hopeful as I do every day. Well, and, and spending a little time in, in Chicago, I mean, those of us who grew up in Milwaukee, we consider Chicago one of our nicest suburbs. So, you know, it's, it'll be, it'll be good to be there and be on campus. Yes. Yes. Well, we, we, we appreciate that. I, I was willing to call us a suburb of Milwaukee when you won the NBA championship uh, uh, I wanted to bask in your reflected glow a couple of years <laughs> ago. Uh, but, uh, but we really look forward to having you and to a lot of interesting, provocative, uh, productive uh, discussions. That's what the Institute of Politics is about. And, uh, and you, you're going to be, you're going to fit right in. Well, I'm excited to, to join you. And I'm grateful that you took the time to join us here today. Uh, David Axelrod, appreciate it. 
Thank you so much. Great to be with you. break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 